Um, uh, how many of you guys were here a couple weeks ago and you saw me teach at Hume Lake a few weekends ago? You're so... Mom? Uh, it's good to see you too. What a bummer. You got to listen to this junk twice. Uh, it's okay though. My name is Chris Silken. I am from San Diego, California, but I grew up in the great country of Bakersfield, California. That's right. Liberty High School, class of 2007. We were poor. It was public school. <laughs> Stop making fun of me. But my brother went to BCHS because apparently my parents found money then, and so they went to BCHS. And, uh, but I have a deep love for BCHS. I actually grew up on Juetta Avenue. Juetta, your pants. I grew up right there across from Liberty High School. And so we'll be making Bakersfield jokes all the time we have together, okay? Because everywhere else I go in the world, no one understands. They just don't get it, right? Like if I really mess something up, I'll be like, man, what a Stockdale. And no one understands what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? <laughs> like what a Stockdale Mustang. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? They were our rivals. Um, <clears throat> but you, you have no rivals, right? Because you beat everyone in every sport all of a sudden. I wonder that... <laughs> When my brother played for your basketball team, you did not win every game. But now he left and you got really good. I don't know what happened. Anyway, um, if you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10. It's towards the back of your Bible. Four guys' names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you're doing so, I want to kind of make a commitment to you. And I'm going to ask you to kind of make a commitment to me. And here's what it is. Um, <clears throat> the scripture makes one thing really clear. One thing that the scripture makes clear not only in the book of Galatians where it says that our flesh wants what, what's contrary to the spirit of God, but also that we, there's a real and very practical enemy even here, probably especially here, and that is that any position that you sit in, you might be sitting here, you want nothing to do with God, right? Maybe you grew up in a situation where you, you can't rectify the idea that there could possibly be a God given your circumstance. Or maybe, maybe, you're someone who you're ready to believe in God at a later date, but in the meantime, you've got a lot of stuff you want to do, right? And you're not really into the whole divine eye in the sky, taking a look at what you're doing. And so you're comfortable going to church, you're comfortable doing all these things, but it's just not really your thing, right? You'll figure it out someday, but where you sit right now, it's just not your main thing. You understand what idolatry is, you get that you really care about what your friends think about you, you get at some point you got to probably get good with the big guy, but in the meantime, you're, you're busy, right? You have stuff to do. There's others of us who you go to church every week, right? This is kind of like who I was growing up. You go to church every week. You literally go to Bakersfield Christian High School. Like you're, you're, the school you go to has the, the name in it, right? And so the presumption is you follow Jesus. You're a Christian, or at least you're surrounded by Christians. And so for some of us, we just go, I think when it comes to the whole God conversation, I'm in by osmosis. I rub shoulders with people enough that are getting in. I got religious people around me who really like following God, who know scripture, who read it for fun, nerds. And, and they do that. And, and I'm in class with them. And I sit near them. And my teachers talk about him. And my classes point to him. And I can't even do a stinking science lab without someone being like, and that's the way God made it. You can't, you can't escape it, right? It's in, over, under, through everything you think, everything that you do, every, every bit of your life is kind of immersed in Jesus. But if you're really honest with yourself, 
if you're really honest with yourself, that's, that's the depth of your relationship with God is that the title of the place that you inhabit most of the time has church or Christian or God in the title, and that's kind of the extent of it. Or you might be super hyper-religious elite, a Pharisee, and you come in here and you walk in like floating on clouds. You're like, brother, uh, listen, brother, brothers and sisters, let's listen, right? And you're like, you, and you get really excited that there's gonna be teaching of the word of God because you think the sinners around you really need to hear this, Right? You're like, I hope April's listening because she's promiscuous to say the least, right? And you, this is, but you, you, when you open scripture and when I open scripture, when we read scripture, instead of looking at it like a mirror, you look at it like binoculars, right? Where every time you read scripture, you're like, I hope Sandra's listening. She lied on a math test the other day, right? <laughs> and, and if you're honest with yourself, you know a lot about God. You just don't know him. You know a lot about Jesus, right? He was born in the city of Bethlehem. Good. He was crucified on a mount, a mount called Calvary. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Calvary. He had a, a mom and a dad. Their names were nailed at. Um, but when, pragmatically speaking, though, all you know is trivia about God. And the scriptures make it really clear. Those who know trivia about, there's a whole story in the New Testament. Jesus is asked by a man who says, uh, Jesus, how many people are gonna enter the kingdom of God? And I need you to listen to this because if Satan prowls like a roaring lion and he's very clever, then whatever realm you find yourself in, whatever people group that I just described you find yourself in, Satan is gonna use what you're most comfortable with to get you to tune out to what we're talking about here. You see, if you think you're way too far gone, you want nothing to do with God, you think that the, the power of the cross can't undo the sin of your life, or God doesn't want someone like you, Satan's going to whisper that in your ear, and you're going to go, this isn't for me, this is for the good kids. And then if you're a good kid on the other end of the spectrum, you're thinking, this isn't for me, this is for the bad kids. And for the rest of us, Satan is constantly trying, he's clever, right? And when we say clever, we almost picture him like cartoonish, like he's walking around with a pitchfork and like a big old tail, like, I'm Satan. And we're like, clearly, you're standing in the corner in a big red suit. And he's not. He's clever. He's crafty. And so I want to make a commitment with you as we move forward through this weekend. We, it, just pretend it's a weekend because I'm going to keep saying weekend. It's three days. You're not in school. Let's, I mean, paint it the weekend. Why not? Right? Your teams are winning all sorts of valley championships or whatever. And your volleyball team just won something. I follow y'all on, um, I follow Karen Dirks on Instagram. No, no, but you guys, you guys, you had the best attitude for sure. That's what I think. Yeah, it's a moral victory, but it's, it is what it is. Oh, we'll talk about it later. Um, but, as, but as we go about this time, I want to make a commitment to you, and that is that one of my pet peeves was coming to camp, or I grew up in a Christian school, St. John's Lutheran School. There was like My dad's the pastor of that church. I didn't have a choice. He wasn't like, hey, son, which school do you want to go to, Judas? I was like, no, I'm going to my dad's. My dad's, wow, that's a, that was rough. I was in a graduating class of two people, and I was valedictorian, so. Whatever. I'm not here to brag, but. Um, I just got so distracted because you booed me for going to St. John. That was like super rude. Uh, what? Good. Uh, so 
as you go about this week, my commitment to you is this, that everything that I want to say, I want to ground in the scriptures, okay? I don't want you to, to get the gospel according to Chris, but the gospel according to Christ. And the second thing I'm going to commit to you is um, one of my pet peeves is when you would go to like camps, or you might go to retreats, or you might have um, maybe even at your church or your youth group, uh, when someone kind of like sugarcoats stuff or doesn't talk to you like an adult, you know, like, like you can handle it. And sometimes you're just not told like it is. And so my promise, I'm going to say things that are offensive, not like gratuitously offensive, but the Bible is offensive, right? The essence of it is offensive. Like, that's just the way that it's written. And secondly, that everything I say is grounded in Scripture. And then I want your commitments to be twofold back to me. And one is that you lean into the conversation, that you ask questions that are pertinent. And the second thing is that any pushback you have, that you would ground that in Scripture as well. Because if you walk up to me and you're like, well, I don't feel like God does that, I'm going to ask you one question. Where in Scripture does it say that? And see, the, the problem is we live in a world in which if you like genuinely feel some way about something, particularly God, and you're passionate enough about it, we consider it truth. See, truth in a global perspective has always meant it's, it is in, it's in correlation or it's, it's real in the reality that we live in. That's what truth means. But y'all's generation in particular, your truth is whatever you feel most passionately. And if there's something you, you think about God and you think it very passionately and the scriptures say something different and you walk up to me and say, I don't think, or I would never serve a God who would, or I don't think God would really, or I think that God always thinks, or I'm not sure God really cares about, with all the love and respect in the world, it doesn't matter what you think. God didn't really leave himself up to interpretation. And when he, when he presents himself to Moses in the book of Exodus chapter three, through a burning bush, Moses takes off his sandals and approaches the place where God is. And God says, I am who I am. In other words, I be who I be. And our generation has, got, has said, you are what I say you are. You are what I make of you. You are the parts that I like. You aren't the parts that I don't. You are the God that I've created in my head. As one great theologian once said, God made man in his own image and we've been returning the favor ever since to make God in ours. And so I'm not concerned if at the end of this weekend you necessarily experience the most encouraging anything. I want you to know truth. And the problem is, going to a Christian school, you don't visit the burning bush every once in a while to hear from God. Y'all go to school at the burning bush. And it can get so commonplace for you, and I'm talking to myself, because this is how I grew up. I grew up in Christian school, doing this again and again. And when I walked out on stage, you're probably like, all right, monkey man, what's the story you're gonna tell, right? You listen to speakers all the time. I'm up against it, right? Every great communicator that's ever come through the doors of your school, right now, you're like, all right, look at this guy, he looks like he's 14 years old. What's he gonna teach me, right? But I'm asking you to lean into the conversation and we're walking through this series that, that, that the people in your team have chosen for us. And I want to kind of dive in and, and ask this question. I want to ask the question to start off with. I'm not concerned what you label yourself. And the funny thing is, is, is the Bible isn't either. I went over to Israel a few years back, and our tour guide's name was Ronan. And I'm not going to do his accent because it moves Jamaican really quick and it gets pretty weird. So I'm just gonna use my normal lack of accent like an American would. And uh, I'm talking to him and it was right before the election cycle, okay? Um, circa like 2000 and, 
whatever, I don't know. After COVID, I feel like there's every year is just one big ball of years. You know what I'm talking about? And days, like what are days anymore? They're not even a thing. Um, I also have five kids, so my whole life is a little bit like, uh, I know, you're like, so his first one he had when he was 11. That doesn't, <laughs> shouldn't be doing that when you're in junior high. Um, no, I've, but I have five kids. I'm 33. Uh, okay, anyway, shut your mouth, okay? You're younger than I am. <laughs> no, he does not. <laughs> doesn't even have a beard. Um, I've tried. I really have tried. I just can't do it. Anyone else in here? You're facially challenged, facial hair challenged. Any males in here that are facial hair challenged? I like how many women didn't raise their hand. They're like, no, I just, my goatee. My dude. Hey, what's up, bro? No, that looks great. Shut up. He looks great. No, I feel you. My man. Um, we allow people to label themselves. So we're, we're walking over there, and, and he says, I couldn't imagine Israel ever electing a man who wasn't a Jew. It's the foundation of what we believe. It's the core of who we are. It's the background of our livelihood. It's the, it's the piece de resistance of our culture. We are Jews. And so when we elect a man to lead us, we elect, at least culturally speaking, someone who follows the tenets of the Jewish law and Judaism, and they understand it and they get it. And someone else on our trip, this is not to get into any political things, just the idea. Someone on our trip said, well, the, the, uh, it's, both of the candidates up for election right now are Christians. And Ronan says, no. And you're like, why? What are you talking about? And he goes, he goes did you know that it's almost strictly a Western American idea that someone can label themselves one thing, live their life another way, and we listen to the label rather than watching their life? Isn't that ironic? We, we just moved out to this little city called Bonzel not that long ago in San Diego. And when we did, we had all these fruit trees on the property, but they weren't in season. And I'm not like an arborist, right? I, I don't like, you know, I don't know about plants, right? <laughs> Maybe one of you are. You're like really into shrubs, uh, but I'm not. So I got on the property and I'm like, fruit trees. Like I use a little scanning app and it said, this is a fruit tree. I'm like, it's fantastic. So my, my wife like gets these little cute chalkboards from Hobby Lobby and... Uh, and she writes lemon on the lemon tree. And then she writes orange on the orange tree and grapefruit on the grapefruit tree. And uh, when, when spring came, our lovely trees began to bear fruit. And our lemon tree started bearing oranges. And so naturally, every time it grew an orange, we would pick off the orange and go, son of a gun. And we would punt the orange. Because it's, a, it's, it's like, we're like... <laughs> trying to help the tree read. We're like taking its branches and shoving it at the chalkboard sign like, lemon, you're a lemon tree. And every time that tree grew another fruit, it was always an orange. Do you, if you walked on the property and you watched this circus playing itself out, would any of us go, he's got a point. He's, he's got a point. It's a lemon tree and it's bearing, no. What would you do? As soon as it bore an orange, what would you do? You change the sign. You would go, the label's wrong, right? I don't care how expensive the little chalkboard was. You get a new one or you swap them. Turns out we only have three orange trees, by the way. <laughs> that's, like, that's all we have in our property. So there's, there, all of them needed to be changed. But they just kept bearing more oranges. In the same way the scriptures say, if you claim to love God, but your life 
your focus, your heart, your time, your energy, your, your money, if it all goes to the world, you do not, as the scripture says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You can't claim to love God, and yet the fruit that is born out of your life shows that you show a blatant disregard for what that means. You love the world. Here's an interaction that God has in the New Testament, and, and I love this, the way that it plays out. Mark chapter 10 says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell down on his knees before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is like a threefold question. So uh, the story is called the story of the rich young ruler, okay? So we've got fame, right? We've got youth, we've got beauty, and we've got money, okay? So money, fame, power, persuasion. This is like in their culture and in ours. This is like the crescendo. This is like the the deus ex machina. This is like the guy who comes in in the clutch. Right? This is like Tom Brady, right? He's got like, he's an expert in his craft. He has more Super Bowl rings than any other individual franchise in the history of the NFL. He's married to Giselle, I think her name is, and she's like a supermodel. And he has enough money to make Solomon himself blush. And he walks up, and, and you've got to remember, the scriptures give us a depiction of who Jesus was. Jesus was a Middle Eastern, short, unattractive man. He was a carpenter. Isaiah makes it very clear. There was nothing that would draw you to him. Nothing that, when you looked at him, it's, he, he was despised. Men would turn their face away from him. Even in his, his beating and his death, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted as one to whom people would hide their face. So we, on one side, have the Tom Brady figure, the rich young ruler, who has now found himself falling on his knees in front of this five-foot-two Jewish carpenter with all the religious accoutrement, with calloused hands from all of his stonework growing up. He's a carpenter, but that word in the Greek is tecton. He's a, he just means he works with his hands, and there's not a lot of wood in Israel, so he probably wasn't a woodworker as much as he was probably a quarry worker, right? So he's probably a little bit yoked, and he's got calloused hands, and now he's wearing religious garb, and this Tom Brady figure falls on his knees before him. Don't you love the dichotomy here? What is it that this character has that this guy wants? We found it in the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a man who looks at his life. He looks at all that he has. He's got everything going for him. And yet he finds himself falling on his knees before the Jewish carpenter king saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a very common thing for someone to do. You would ask a rabbi this question. You would ask him questions like, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing I should do? What must one do to inherit eternal life? And this would help you understand which rabbi you wanted to listen to. So this is probably what this man's doing. He's testing him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what do you call him? He called him good teacher. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Okay, you can't use... American vernacular, because the word good for us can mean a lot of different things, right? If your grandma's walking in the parking lot 120, 120 feet away from me, and I throw a rock at her, and I hit her in the neck, am I a good person? No. Was that a good throw? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Isn't that funny? That was a good throw, but that wasn't a good throw. You know what I'm saying? We use the same word to mean that that's that never what Jesus would have meant. He doesn't mean, am I an okay teacher? Am I a not bad teacher? The word good that he's saying is the word perfect, okay? So when this man walks up to Jesus, he falls on his knees and he says, perfect teacher. And Jesus goes, did you just call me perfect? 
Because let's get one thing clear. The only one that's perfect is God. So let's establish this. Are you calling me God, or do you think I'm just some teacher? So he's saying, before I answer your question, am I here as some consultant to you, or am I here as your God? You see the difference? When you, in some of this, this is how we see God. We approach God like a consultant, and we go, God, I'm going through something. I've got some options on the table. One is sinful, one is not. I'd like your opinion. The not sinful one, thank you for your opinion. I will take it under advisement, duly noted. I will ingest what you've said, digest it, and see what comes out the other side. Thanks for the heads up, right? This is how we treat God, cosmic consultant. So God's, Jesus is what Jesus is doing. Are you, are you asking me for advice, or are you going to follow whatever I say? Because if I'm God, you would just go, you got it. So he tests him. Are you calling me God? Do you think I'm perfect? Because no one is good but God alone. You know that, right? Jesus continues. You know the commandments. Jesus is asked later in the book of Mark, chapter 12, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus' response is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, Jesus responds, you want to get into heaven? What are the commandments? The man says, he's quoting all of the person-to-person uh, -person part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. This is Jesus' response. And then what does the rich young ruler respond? First he calls him good teacher, what does he call him in verse 20? Teacher. We missed a word that second time, didn't we? Why? He called him on the carpet. Am I your God or am I a consultant? And he goes, mm, consultant. We lost the good. We lost the perfect. We lost the unimpaired. We lost the faultless, the blameless. The rich and says, teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. So we've got the rich and ruler saying, what's the rules? Jesus, speaking hyperbolically, basically says, you know the commandments. There's 613 of them, right? Old Testament commandments. He quotes just the ones from the, from the Ten Commandments. And assuming that this rich young ruler is going to go, that's a lot. But he doesn't. What's the rich young ruler's response? Nailed it. If you want to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, you've got to be perfect. The rich young ruler says, Okay, then what? Can you imagine the cosmic internal grin that Jesus has in this moment? Because this isn't some rich young ruler to Jesus. The book of Psalms make it really clear that God knits us together in his mother's womb. Through him, the book of John chapter 1 begins, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Through him, all things were made, and nothing that has come into existence that wasn't made through Jesus. Which means... Who is familiar with the rich young ruler? His life, his past, his beginning, his conception, and everything else in between. Jesus is. Jesus knew no strangers. He never walked down the street and went, hello, individual. He knew them all. So he knows this man too, which is why he responds as he does. All these things I've kept since I was a boy, and Jesus goes, okay, what? Add pride to that list, rich young ruler, all the things I've kept since I was a boy. Oh, you got to love this part. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him and 
loved him. You see, the truth of your position with God of the universe, the truth of the idols that we serve, the truth of the parts of our life that whether or not we love God, the truth of it, exposing that in our hearts so that God can transform it is considered love here. God looked at him and loved him and said, there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything. Imagine being a rich young ruler and hearing a Jewish carpenter of five foot two who's ugly and people turn their face saying, excuse me, rich young ruler, you are missing something. How offensive. You're going to tell me what I lack? I'm rich. I'm powerful. I'm youthful. I'm beautiful. I don't lack any. You lack something. One thing you lack. Sell everything you have and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Let me ask you a question as we wrap up our time here. Do you love God? You do. Who said yes? You? What's your name? Lauren. Lauren, you're bold. You love God. Show me. You've given yourself a label, now I want you to demonstrate it. Show me. Okay. Anyone else love God? You do? I love that. <laughs> this is literally what she did. It's like she didn't want Jesus to look at her and be like, hey. So she was like, okay. It's the most non-committal love of God I've ever seen in my life. Okay. What's your name? Kate. Have you ever been more embarrassed in your life? No? Okay. Do you love God? Show me. You don't know how. This is how you love God? I am. Deflecting. I like it. No, it's right. This is an important question. How we claim to love God, right? The Bible, there's a litmus test for this. Scripture says you can't just claim to love God and not do anything about it. It's useless. It's, an, it's a non-selfific faith. doesn't do anything. doesn't change your heart. doesn't change your position. doesn't change your posture. doesn't change your destiny. changes nothing. To claim that you love God does nothing. Jesus, when he's preaching about the narrow door, he says, many people on that day when they close their eyes in death will say to me, Lord, Lord, we loved you too. And he turns around and says, but I don't know who you are. So what does it mean for us to love God completely? That's the whole point of this first message. And it couldn't be a more vague thing to get a message from. When I got the message notes, I went, love God completely? Literally, the whole Bible is all about the subject of love God completely. And I want to take it down to, and reduce it so simply and ask you a question that might be more pressing on the heart of a highly religious group of people. Do you love him at all? Are you about the things that he's about? Do you hate the things that he hates? We watch it in movies all the time, right? We know when people love, you guys ever seen Princess Bride? So good, okay. Princess Buttercup gets captured. 
By whom? No. You've got Andre the Giant, right? You've got, you've got the Sicilian, and they're, they've captured her, and she's behind enemy lines, and she says, my Wesley will come for me. Why is she confident of that? Because what they had was love, whoa, love, right? And that's just what love does. Love moves on behalf of its object. It intervenes. It sacrifices. It submits to its beloved. My question to you is simple. Beyond claiming to love God, how do you love God? Jesus says this phrase over and over again. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will love one another. If you love me, you will feed my sheep. If you love me, you will not continue in the life of sin that you were previously in, 1 John chapter 3. If you love me. So friend, when we go beyond labeling ourselves a little chalkboard Christian and we go to a deeper ideal, do you love God? And beyond you being able to verbalize to me that you do, if I looked at your life and, your, and, and the way that you think and, and the way that you treat people and the way that you spend money, it does anything else in your life beyond your label Tell anyone, including God, that you love him. You see, there's, there's characteristics of it. I, uh, last, last summer, I'll tell you this story quickly. Last summer, um, my wife took her own life. It was a long ordeal. We, she gave birth to our fifth kid, got diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot on her lungs, which sent her to the hospital. She thought that she was dying. That started a night of 10 nights where she didn't sleep at all. After those 10 nights, it had kind of spiraled into psychosis and schizophrenia, and she lost connection with who she was. And we put her in the best mental hospital in the nation and eight days after doing so, on July 31st of 2021, my wife killed herself. Leave me alone with five kids. And it, and it causes us to ask questions, and, and the reason that I'm bringing that up is not, is not for you to feel sorry for me, but instead it's to understand that whatever part of your life, like the rich young ruler, you haven't submitted to who he is, you better believe that that will be the exact area of your life that he exposes to show you that you have not loved him completely. The rich young ruler said, uh, take my understanding, take my intelligence, take my future, take my destiny, take the inheritance that I will receive one day. And God says, now give me your money. And he said, absolutely not. And friend, you have in your life an idol like so many of us do, but love demonstrates itself in love to eradicate that and to bring truth and to expose those things. And if you ask me, how did you love Paige? I can show you months of sitting next to her when she was in bed, staying up from midnight to 8 a.m. so that she didn't hurt herself, taking her to appointment after appointment. I spent all the money that I had in all of my bank accounts to make sure that my wife could get well. And there's not a person who knows the story who would look at me and go, you didn't love her well. You didn't love her. 
But the great irony is that I love my Savior even more, and the love that he has for me and the depths of how it's changed me is so pervasive, pervasive, and the, and the love that I've experienced from him since that's happened has been so much deeper than any love that I've ever known. And so I ask you, I'm not asking you to be shock value, I'm asking you and I'm pleading with you because in the day when you find out that the storm of your life has hit, if there's a place of exposure in your life, if there's something you haven't surrendered over to God, that is exactly the entrance that Satan will use to walk into your life. And on that morning when I found out that my wife was dead, If you don't bleed the truth and the love of who Jesus is, when you get cut, something else will spill out. You will lower your theology to match your pain. Some of you, it'll be a relationship. You'll get into a relationship, and the love of God in your heart was great, but your love for this person is greater. The love that you had for God in your heart, you might think that there's something to it, but in reality, he was just the next best thing until something better came along. And when suffering and when new affections enter your life and when new things come and try to rip you away, just like the rich young ruler, I have a question for you that I'm pleading from the depths of my heart with. I want you to truly ask yourself the question, if you couldn't tell me that you loved God, how would I know? What does surrender look like in your life? You do not know a great love. You've never seen a great love in a movie. You don't know a great love in your life. If your parents have a great romance and a great love, I promise you it is not void of submission. I promise you it's not void of surrender, and I promise you it's not void of sacrifice. So I ask you a simple question. If every great love ever requires and is the litmus test of it, and the observation we can make in accordance with it is that we see adoration and reverence and sacrifice and submission. Let's just take those simple things. It sacrifices it submits, it reveres. I ask you a simple question. Do you love God? And you, this is not something that you started. First John 4, 7, 8 makes it very clear. We love because God first loved us. So test him. Well, God, do you love me? Yes. He surrendered himself, Philippians chapter 2, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God someone to be grasped and held onto, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. He came all the way down and put on human skin to die a death that you deserve. Did he sacrifice? You better believe it at the highest cost. Did he surrender and submit to the will of the Father? You better believe it. He's demonstrated for it. For God so loved the world that he gave. He demonstrated. It was a demonstrable love. It went beyond his label. It wasn't a chalkboard. It was a movement. It was a passion. It had legs. It moved. It changed. And I'll tell you one thing. A heart that doesn't, a love for God that doesn't transform your whole life. Sure, you're still going to mess up. Sure, you're going to still have sin in your life. But if we can look at great romances and say, they have these characteristics, I ask you, friend, do you love God? Because your label won't get you into his kingdom. Never once do you find in scripture that on that last day when you meet God face to face, he's gonna go, and what do you like in yourself too? You don't get to reach in your pocket and go, uh, here we go. Christian, It says God looks through the label and he examines the heart. And on that day, you're not going to get a trivia test or a personality test 
It's going to be a blood test. And if you're not his son and you're not his daughter, you're just not getting in. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and spoke that hard truth to him. And I hope you can understand the love that not just me, but that, that, but that your, your faculty and your staff and everyone who's brought you here has brought you to hear the truth of the question that is tonight's crescendo. Do you actually love him? Or is it label deep? And if you do, great. I know a lot of you do. How? Where? And do you love the sin in your life more than him? Do you sacrifice for it? Do you submit to it? If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, do you love God, but when it comes to surrender and submission, you submit and surrender to them and not to him? Then you don't really have a God. You have a cosmic consultant that is incapable of saving you because that's not saving faith. Your trust is in the things of this world and not in the king of this world. I leave you with one question. Do you love God completely? Father, as we enter into a conversation this weekend about not what it looks like to label ourselves and not, not something so simple as the theory of Christianity or it's not just about us being able to recite the dogmas of different doctrinal beliefs or to, to have a comprehension of world religions or, to, or, or in some way be able to articulate what the Christian faith believes, but instead has that knowledge made the 11 or 12 one-foot journey from our head to our heart and it's become a conviction of who we are. Father, I don't just want to know things about you. I pray this prayer in my own heart, God. Would the things that I know about you transfer into the things that I'm convicted in my deepest core about who you are to me? Would it change my life? Would it transform me from the inside out? God, I'm sick of label Christianity in my own life. Do a great work in me. Eradicate what needs to be eradicated. Sacrifice what needs to be sacrificed. And expose the parts of my heart that I haven't surrendered to you because I don't want to be like the rich young ruler. I don't want you to call out my idol and have me walk away because I don't want to give it up. I want you to show me what it is and through your spirit, take it out of my life.